You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We're going to continue in our series looking at the book of Galatians, and so I invite you to open up to Galatians. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've probably noticed that Paul's letter to the Galatians, as I told you, is potent. This letter, as you get into it, has the ability to challenge our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, because that's what it's been doing since it was first written And many of you, because I know I've had many conversations with you. In fact, I've never had so many people talk to me about a sermon before. It's actually quite amazing. Um, So by all means, keep talking because it's really cool. But many of you, I know that Paul's letter has been challenging much of your understanding, much of what you were taught as a child, much of what you've taught your own children about what it means to be a Christian. And for some of you, that's been uncomfortable. That's been incredibly disconcerting. I know it was for me when I first started reading through Paul's letters. So believe me, you're not alone in this. But the incredible thing is about Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we continue to understand it, as we continue to dig into it, is we begin to understand that the gospel, what Jesus did for us, how we are made right with God, is incredibly freeing. It's incredibly good news. It's something to dig into. I mean, case in point, As we've looked at the last couple weeks, we have seen that what makes us a Christian has nothing to do with our actions. Being a Christian has nothing to do with how much you read your Bible. Being a Christian has nothing to do with how much you go to church, how much you tithe, how much you pray. Being a Christian has nothing to do with your ability to follow laws or rules or mandates or traditions. Being a Christian has nothing to do with how morally pure you are. Or how much you know. Being a Christian has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. And for some of you go, well, that is scary. Because I was taught I always had to do this. I always had to do that. That's how I knew my salvation was secured, by my actions. And Paul goes, it's not about what you did. And praise God, because we can't even keep our own rules. Let alone these made-up ones. Right or, or God's laws, we can't even keep those things. And Paul says it doesn't matter because it's not about what you do. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know we were made right with God. Jesus has done everything for us. All we have to do is receive what he offers us. All we have to do is trust that what he did was enough. That's what makes us a Christian. But the question still remains, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like ontologically speaking, and I know some of you are going, I haven't heard that word since college. (laughs) Ontologically speaking, meaning having to do deep down with our identity. How does our faith in Jesus Christ change us? How does our faith in Jesus Christ change our identity? How does faith in Jesus Christ change how we live, how we see ourselves, how we engage other people? 
Does it? Paul's answer is yes, it does. And in fact, as we're going to see today, the passage we're looking at, this question is at the very heart of the passage. After telling his story, after saying how Paul became a Christian, and after telling us how he came to understand that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and then how he took those ideas of his gospel to Jerusalem and had the church leaders sign off on them, Paul now tells us of a really awkward encounter he had with the Apostle Paul. And I say awkward because, as you're going to see, Paul publicly calls Peter a coward and a hypocrite. And then through a series of incredibly dense arguments, publicly chastises him. Publicly. This is, this is super awkward. And here's, here's how you know it's awkward because for thousands of years, Christians have tried to kind of smooth over this incident. We've tried to make up excuses for what was really going on and we've tried to pretend it's not in there because the truth is, as you look at it, you go, this is kind of like the church's dirty laundry that we're just airing out for all people to see and this is just awkward. And so you go, well, why are we looking at it? Because at the very heart of this dispute is the question of what does it mean to be a Christian? Fundamentally speaking, how does our faith in Jesus change us, change how we live, change how we see ourselves, change how we engage others. And Paul does not believe that Peter is walking the right way. Paul believes Peter knows better, and so Paul publicly rips into him. It's awkward, but it's important to sit in, and so that's why we're going to read it this morning. And so I invite you to open up with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 We're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to read all the way till the end of the chapter. And in fact, here's kind of my game plan. Here's my strategy. Here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to read the entire passage for you. Okay, we're going to start in 11, and we're going to go all the way to 21. And here's what's going to happen next. By about uh, verse 13, you're going to get really confused. And you're going to get more confused as every verse goes on. And by the end of it, you're going to go, the only thing I know is Paul was mad. I don't know why. Here's the thing. It took me, I don't know how many times I had to read and reread and reread and reread to fully understand what was going on. I've consulted so many commentaries to parse out the different understanding. But the one thing I saw is this. When you begin to take this passage in bite-sized pieces, it actually begins to make a lot of sense. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read it all the way through. So you're familiar with kind of where we're going and where he ends. But then... We'll go back and we're just going to take it a chunk at a time, okay? So if you're confused, you're a normal human individual, okay? Paul begins this way. When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas was Peter's Hebrew name. Just as remember, Paul was called Saul by his Hebrew brothers or his Jewish brothers. Peter was called Cephas. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other, Jew, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, 
Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you think it's a good idea to force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, what's wrong with you? Peter, we who are Jews by birth and not so-called sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law we all know that no one will ever be justified. No one will ever be made right with God. But, if some say, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Jesus Christ promotes sin? No, that's ridiculous. Absolutely not. But on the other hand, If I rebuild what I destroyed, well then, yeah, I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now, just quick poll. Who made it past like verse 15 in understanding? Okay, like three of you. I'm very impressed. I was so confused. It just seems like such choppy language. And the truth is, it is choppy in English. And the funny thing is, when I started to get into it, into the Greek, it's like one of the few times I'm like, whoa, my education's paying off because this is just incredibly dense word pictures that Paul is using. And so when they try to translate it, it comes off incredibly choppy. And that's part of what makes this so difficult. The whole thing is rich plays on words that just don't translate as well. And so I'm going to try to do my very best to take it in smaller chunks and try and help you to understand what's going on. And we'll do that by just starting at the top. Paul sets the scene by saying, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is kind of the summary statement of what's happening. Now, a couple things here. First and foremost... It's not a foreign concept. It really shouldn't surprise us that Peter made his way to Antioch. Couple reasons. First, we know for a fact that at this this point in Peter's uh, life, he's walking as an itinerant preacher, meaning he just goes around and visits uh, Christian communities all over the place. And Antioch was a city that was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, so from like here to San Francisco. And it was also a huge metropolitan city with a large Christian presence. And so it totally makes sense that Peter would have made his way to Antioch. Now, as you can imagine, any visit from Peter would have been a big deal. If they were Catholics back then, this would have been the equivalent of the Pope showing up. Nobody got the joke. Let me explain. (laughs) Catholics believe Peter was the first Pope, and then it goes on and on, and that they're all just... Okay, still didn't work. Regardless... This would have been like the Pope showing up. It's a really funny inside Christian joke that nobody cares for. <laughs> and here's why it's a big deal for Peter to show up. Okay, this is, this is the Peter. This is the guy that 
as you read through the Gospels, was with Jesus from the very beginning. This is the guy that for three years walked side by side with him. For three years sat at his feet while Jesus would teach the masses. And then for three years would get private lessons from Jesus himself when everybody else would go home. This is the same Peter that Jesus affectionately nicknamed The Rock. And ironically, this guy named The Rock then decided to walk on water. Okay, these jokes are terrible apparently. Let me explain this one. When a rock goes on water. Now, but Peter, Peter decided he's going to walk on water. Peter is also the same guy that correctly identified who Jesus was before anybody else. He said, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Nobody else got it up until this point. Peter is also the guy, if you remember, that went with Jesus, James, and John onto the mountain and Jesus transfigured himself, whatever that means, showed his true self in front of Moses and Elijah. I mean, Peter was there for it. He was so boggled by what was going on. He goes, Jesus, it's good that I'm here. (laughs) Yeah, this is real good. It's this Peter. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus. This is the same Peter that after denying Jesus, after Jesus rose, made up with Jesus again on the beach. Remember the, if you love me, feed my sheep? It's that Peter. This is the same Peter that was talking to Jesus on the day he went, ooh, those are ascension noises, okay? (laughs) You can Google them. He went up into heaven. Peter is the guy standing there talking to him. Peter is also the guy on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and all the Christians poured into the street praising God in different languages and everybody thought they were drunk. Peter's the guy that stood up and goes, they're not drunk. And Peter begins to explain how this was the long-awaited day of the Lord and how what's going on is because they, the Jews in Jerusalem, killed Jesus. Peter stands in front of thousands and says this but that the grave could not hold him. Peter's the first one to stand up and preach the gospel to everybody. It's this Peter. Peter is a big deal. Peter is somebody to be considered. And so when Peter shows up, that's a big deal. That's exciting. The problem is, apparently, when Peter got to Antioch, something happened. Something went wrong. And because Peter was such a big deal... Everybody kind of followed Peter in his errors. Paul describes what happened in verse, four, or in verse 12. He says, For before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with Gentiles. All of this is over a food dispute. Okay? Not like food fight. No, it's about who you sit with when you eat. And you may go, why is this a big deal? Like a food fight, really? Like this is what we're going to split over? This is what Paul is losing his temper over? A food fight? Well, here's the thing. If you think about it, eating with someone is actually a rather intimate thing. And if you don't believe me, just imagine going out to lunch after this. You go to a nice restaurant, you're sitting down with your family, maybe some friends that you invite with you, and then some random group of people just sits down at your table and starts chatting you up. You would be uncomfortable if that happened. In our culture, that's not normal. Now, in Europe, that is a normal thing. But in our culture, that is not a normal thing. Now, in Jesus' culture, though, it's even more extreme. Because it was believed who you ate with made a profound social statement about who you were. Meaning, if you were rich, you ate with the rich because you were rich. If you were poor, 
You ate with the poor because you were poor. It was indicative of your social status. And this is why, if you've ever wondered, why do the Pharisees continue to get so upset with Jesus when he eats with tax collectors and sinners? It's because, in essence, Jesus is saying, I'm one of them. Or, at a minimum, he's saying, they're one of me. And the Pharisees are like, no, we can't do this. We can't abide this. This doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. This was a big deal in this culture. Who you ate with mattered. And apparently, up until this point in Peter's life, Peter had been living uh, in a way that he constantly ate with Gentiles, with non-Jewish believers. He had no problem associating with them. But over time, Peter began to draw back. This is how Paul puts it. But when the men from James arrived, Peter began to draw back. This was slowly, it wasn't immediate, it took some time, and eventually he separated himself from the Gentiles, from the non-Jewish believers, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Paul calls him a coward. The other Jews then joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Something about when these men from James arrived, everything changed. The men from James, if you remember, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. James was also the, the, the half-brother of Jesus himself, the guy that literally grew up with Jesus. James was a, a big deal in his own right. And so when these guys show up, they say something to Peter that causes Peter to separate from the non-Jewish believers and only hang out with the Jewish believers. And then, because Peter's such a big deal, everybody began to follow his way. Paul says the reason Peter did it was out of fear. And then, you hear, even in Paul's words, even Barnabas was led astray. And if you remember, Barnabas is Paul's missionary partner. Barnabas just went on a missions trip with Paul to go and preach to the Gentiles about Jesus. Barnabas, for the last 15, 14 years, has been Paul's mentor, his best friend. If anybody should know better, it's Barnabas. Paul and him have processed all of this stuff together for years, and yet even Barnabas was led astray by Peter's stupidity. Okay, a couple questions remain. Like, why did Peter withdraw? What did the men from James say or do that made Peter withdraw? What was he afraid of, as Paul puts it? And then the second question is, so what? So Peter withdrew, so what? You have, you know, he's just hanging out with the Jewish Gentiles or the Jewish Christians. Like, why is this a big deal? Well, first, as to why Peter withdrew. The short answer, we don't know. I told you for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to smooth out this story, and they've come up with a million different hypotheses, because really all we know is what it says right here. Some people have said, in an attempt to make this seem um, better than it is, that this was actually a staged event between Peter and Paul, that Peter was going to do something foolish so that all the Christians in the room could then be corrected by Paul. I, no, I don't buy that. And other people argue that Peter just kind of withdrew from the Gentiles to the, to the Jews because, well, he was tired of living among Gentiles. They kind of grossed him out, and so he preferred being with them. I, that doesn't make any sense either. 
Some people argue that when the men from James came, the the Jerusalem Jews showed up, they were so against the idea of being around Gentiles that Peter didn't want to offend them, and that's why he hung out with just the Jews. Maybe, I don't don't know. The argument I think that's probably most compelling, it's a little more complex, but the argument is that when the men from James came, they reported the situation in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And we know that at this time period, Christians in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, were facing a ton of persecution for their faith in Christ. And so when it got out that the main leader of the church was hanging out with Gentiles, it brought more persecution, more pressure on the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That seems to make the most sense. It also makes sense of the fear. Peter wasn't necessarily afraid of the Gentiles as much as he was afraid of bringing more pain and suffering onto his own Jewish brethren. Like I said, I think that one makes the most sense, but we don't know. That is a total guess. Total guess. But regardless of why Peter withdrew, by withdrawing, by separating himself from the non-Jewish believers, from the Gentiles, to be with the Jewish believers, Peter in his actions is actually saying there's two classes of Christians. There's the uber-holy Jewish Christians. And then there's the non-Jewish Christians. Now the key here is Peter is not denying the faith of the non-Jewish Christians. Peter believes wholeheartedly that people are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Peter knows it. Paul said it in his own argument. Peter, you know this. Peter believes everybody comes to faith through Jesus and Jesus alone, not by works. But by withdrawing and only hanging out with the Jews, what Peter is saying is there's actually this elite group and I'm kind of part of this elite group. And you guys are welcome to come over here. You're welcome to join us. It's just if you want to become one of us, snip, snip. (laughs) You got to wonder when they were coming out. I'm telling you, I'm fitting them into every single sermon. That's why I bought these things. You have to be circumcised, is what they would have told the non-Jewish believers. You are welcome to hang out with us, but you've got to become one of us. Well, this was just unfathomable for Paul. Because Paul understood that Jesus didn't come to create two classes of citizens. Jesus doesn't believe in separate but equal Because Jesus knows inherently there's no such thing as separate but equal. As soon as you espouse separate but equal, all you're really doing is saying that they're not united and they're not equal. They're divided. And he goes, the body of Christ cannot simply be divided. And so by Peter withdrawing and just hanging out, Peter is splitting the body of Christ. Peter, by his actions, is making a profound theological statement and he's leading others into air with him. And so Paul, when he sees Peter doing this, does the most natural, loving thing he could think of. It's the exact same thing you would do if you saw a group of children run absentmindedly into oncoming traffic. The most natural, loving thing in that instance is to shout, stop! You can keep going, you don't have to. Right? That's the most natural, loving thing you can think of in that moment, is to yell at a child to stop so that they don't hurt themselves. And what Peter is doing, Paul just naturally, instinctively yells, stop. You don't know what you're doing by this. Actually, he says, you do. Look at what he says. This is verse 14. 
verse 14. When I saw that they, meaning the Jewish Christians, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I called Peter out. I said to Peter in front of all of them, Peter, you're a Jew. We all know this. I'm a Jew with you. We get this. But Peter, for the last few years, you've been living like a Gentile. You've been living like a non-Jew. You haven't been living like a Jew. Why do you think it's a good idea then to make these non-Jews become Jewish? You don't even live like a Jew anymore. What are you thinking? And then Paul begins his arguments. And they're dense, but they also come in rapid-fire sequence. And so I want you to see if you can keep up with it. How is it that you force these Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, you know better. Peter, we all know better. Verse 15. For we who are Jews by birth and are not so-called sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by... Know that a per... Where did I go? Nah. 16. Know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Peter, we all know what makes us a Christian. We all espouse that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Everyone agrees it ha- we are not made Christians by our actions. Peter, nobody disputes this. You believe this. This is the gospel you've been preaching for years. Everybody gets this. It is for this reason. So we too, as Jews, have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be made right with God. We may be justified By faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, not by our efforts, not by what we bring to the table. Because we all know that by works of the law, no one will ever be justified. Peter, everybody knows this. Peter, in the verses just before this, remember, Peter was among the Jerusalem church that agreed to this. That affirmed this theology, as was James. Everybody knows this is what it is to be a Christian. Nobody disputes this. Peter, you know better. But, and this might give us a hint as to what the argument was that the men of James said, but if, as some say, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? If we, in not following the law, end up finding ourselves hanging out with sinners, hanging out with Gentiles. Does that mean that we're embracing their sin? Does that mean that Jesus promotes their sin? No, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. And remember, this is Paul saying this to Peter, and he's probably reminding Peter, remember of all those times you told me when Jesus would sit with tax collectors and sinners? You sat at that table. You told me how Jesus did this. You know full well being among sinners does not make you a sinner any more than it made Jesus a sinner. Peter, you know this. Now, on the other hand, if I rebuild what I've destroyed... If I rebuild what I tore down in the first place, well then, yeah, I really would be a lawbreaker. Now, Peter, if you want to go back to the old ways, if you want to rebuild the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, go for it. 
But here's what you need to realize you're doing in saying that you're rebuilding this old system, rebuilding the law, rebuilding the old dividing laws. You're saying that you weren't right in the first place. You're saying you were wrong, that you were a lawbreaker. You're saying that the gospel you've been preaching, the life you've been living was a lie. Peter, what is wrong with you? You know better. Peter, you know we are not under the power of the law. And then he says this in verse 19. For it is through the law that we died to the law. And the reason I died was so that I might live for God. Church, I want to kind of pause. I want to break the the flow here. And I want you to reread that sentence. And to the very best of your ability, as you reread the sentence, I want you to try to strip out all this hyper-spiritual mysticism we often inject into Scripture, thinking this thing just glows and aura. And I want you to realize this was a statement uttered by a real person. More than that, this was a statement uttered by a first-century Jew. This was a statement uttered by a Pharisee, no less. And if you remember, we talked about Pharisees last week. Pharisees spent their entire life trying to perfectly understand, interpret, and live under the law. Because the Pharisees believed that it was only through the law that they would ever be able to truly experience the life that God intended for them. And Paul, as a Pharisee who has encountered the risen Christ, Paul says, the one thing I've learned, the law didn't get me anywhere. I died to the law. It was through the law that I died to the law, but in dying to the law, I was set free to live for God. This is an incredibly profound statement. This is huge. And in fact, what Paul begins to do here is he's beginning to define what it means to be a Christian. I want you to realize, in the midst of this, Paul is beginning to define, or at least Paul is beginning to self-identify with Jesus. You go, when when did Paul die under the law? Well, Paul, we know, did not die under the law. But we do know that Jesus died under the law. When Jesus was hung on the cross, Jesus died under the law. And in the same way Jesus died, Paul says, I died. In what Jesus did, I did. And because Jesus died to the law, I died to the law. And in dying to the law, I am no longer under the authority of the law. I am free from the law, Paul says. I don't have to follow the law anymore. It has no power over me. I died. There's no no continuing policy after death to follow the law. Instead, I'm now under a new authority. I live my life an entirely different way not governed by the law, it's governed by my God. And he explains this more in the next verse. Look at verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is another huge statement of what it means to be a Christian. Paul has already said, I died to the law. As a Christian, I am not defined by the law. 
But in saying he was also crucified along with Christ, Paul is saying, I also died to myself. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a huge statement. See, what Paul is beginning to do, what Paul is recognizing that is that as a Christian, or as a person, he recognizes that the life he has been trying to live on his own, when he was in the driver's seat, when Paul was Lord of his life, when Paul was calling the shots, he wrecked his life. All it brought him was pain, misery, and suffering. Look, the Bible calls this sin, right? When we think we know how to live better than God, all we do is cause pain. It's when we live as God created us, when we live as God intended us, then we live right and we typically don't cause pain in the life of other people. But it's when I decide how I want to live, when I decide what is right, when I decide what is wrong, when I, by my ego, come up with my plans, my desires, my will, my way of living, well, that's when everything just, you know, falls apart. And Paul is saying, as a Christian, the one thing I have recognized is that I don't have anything to bring. And as a Christian, I have surrendered my life fully to Christ. As a Christian, I have completely died to myself. Jesus puts it this way. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And Paul is essentially saying that I've denied myself. All of the things that used to define me, all of the things that used to mark me, all of the things that I used to think are what made me me, I've denied them. The only thing that defines Paul is Jesus. And so the way that Paul has decided to live, he says so in the middle here, the life I now live, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, what Paul is saying is the way he has decided how to live the way he has decided how to see himself, the way he has decided how to engage other people is solely through the lens of Jesus. However Jesus lived, Paul lives. However Jesus saw people, Paul sees people. However Jesus engages people, Paul engages people. See, Paul realized that when he was in control, it brought nothing but pain, misery, and suffering. And so he says, I'm done with that life. I surrender my will. I surrender my ideas. I surrender my life. Instead, I look to Jesus and I follow him. And as a Christian, this is what defines me. This is what marks me as a Christian. It's not me. I don't know what is right. My ideas of morality, my culture's ideas of how I should live, my culture's ideas of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, and while I'm drawn into certain things because of my politics and because of the way I was raised as a child, because of all that, Paul says, it doesn't matter. That's not what being a Christian is about. Being a Christian is about recognizing our ways are incomplete. Being a Christian is about recognizing our ways are wrong. Our ways lead to destruction. And so being a Christian is recognizing it's to daily surrender our lives to Jesus and say, 
I, I, I don't want to continue to live as I think is best. But it's looking to Jesus as the Savior who bought us back from our sin, who gave us new life, but also as our Lord, as our King, as the one who now defines how we are to live. And so in following Jesus, we are then able to fully experience what it means to be a Christian. This isn't about a series of laws or rules or mandates or have-tos. It's all about a person. And it's all about following in the footsteps of that individual. Paul concludes his argument this way. I do not set aside the grace of God. And then I added, because I think this is what he's meaning, like you guys do. You Jews who have abandoned the grace of God, thinking you can add to whatever it is that God has done for you. I don't do that. I don't abandon the grace of God. I don't think I can add to God's grace. Because I know if righteousness could be gained through the law, if I could be made better with God, if I could be made right with God through the law, well, then Christ died for nothing. The very foundation of Paul's theology is all about the cross. And so Paul says, as a Christian, I look to Jesus and I follow him. Church, my brothers and sisters, as your friend, as your pastor, as your brother in Christ, as I've reflected on this passage, as I reflect what goes on in our lives, I, I can't help but realize so many of us try to define our lives for ourselves. So many of us try to live our lives based on how other people define how we should live, where we should live, what we should do, how much money we should make, all sorts of things about how we should treat other people. Other people try and dictate those terms to us. But the truth is, they're just as foolish as we are. They've caused just as much pain as we do. And it's not to say that there's no wisdom to be gained in the world. Of course there's wisdom to be gained in the world. We are all reflections of God himself. Of course there is. Even other religions have wisdom in them that we can garner. But if the primary way we are living is the way we decide, then we're just walking towards destruction. We're going to end up back in the pit that Jesus pulled us out of. And instead, what Paul recognizes and what is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian is to say, I can't make terms for myself. I need to follow somebody. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Let me pray.